Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have two guests today. First is Emily Callahan. She's a marine conservation biologist, an offshore energy consultant, and an entrepreneur at Blue Latitudes. And then I have Amber Sparks. She's also a marine conservation biologist, an environmental consultant, and an entrepreneur. And she's a co-founder of Blue Latitudes LLC. It's a woman-owned small business and a marine environmental consulting firm. So welcome to you both. Thank you for having us. Actually, my, that Callahan is my maiden name. My married name is Hazelwood. Oh, okay. Sorry. All right. Emily Hazelwood. Got it. Very good. If both of you would give maybe a brief background and then how Blue Latitudes came to be formed and what the premise of it is. But uh, first backgrounds, if you would, both of you. Sure. Well, I got my start out of undergraduate working on the BP oil spill. And, you know, during that time, I was hired to do biota sampling and water sampling and sediment sampling. And that was the first time I was exposed to an offshore oil platform and the devastation caused by an oil spill But it's also the first time I learned about the Rigs to Reefs program through the fishermen that we were working with who would drive our sampling boats. You know, they'd be, we'd be out there with them and they would just be talking about how they just could not wait to go out to these platforms to go fishing on the weekend, which at the time seemed bizarre because, you know, here we are out there, you know, witnessing some of the negative impacts associated with these platforms. But I'm also learning what important fisheries habitat they provide. The platforms create a good, a good fishing spot. Yes, and they're really, really popular with a lot of recreational fishermen in the Gulf of Mexico. They provide great fisheries habitat, and that was actually part of the impetus for launching a rig series program in the Gulf of Mexico back in the late 1980s. And I became very interested in the rig series program and the potential that it had. And when I moved out to California to pursue my master's degree at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, and I met Amber. Amber told me that California also has offshore oil and gas platforms, but unlike the Gulf of Mexico, which has, you know, reefed well over 500 structures, California has reefed exactly zero of their offshore oil platforms. And so we decided to join forces and do our master's thesis together on investigating why that was. And more than that, what was the potential for this rigs to reefs program on a global scale? Yeah, after the other intro, I want to ask you about, you know, how do you reefify a rig? But uh, the first, sure. the other interest. That's a great question. Well, my background is a little bit different. I grew up in California and studied marine science at UC Berkeley. When I graduated, I started working with Google and their program, Google Ocean, where they're mapping our ocean floor and doing educational work, understanding and communicating the value of a healthy ocean. So I was really passionate about this idea of talking to communities, stakeholders, and, you know, people on a larger scale to get them involved in caring about our oceans. And when I went to graduate school and met Emily and learned about this idea of rigs as reefs, I just thought that sounded like one of the most outlandish communication problems I'd ever heard of. How can we, especially in California, where 
so many of us are very anti oil and gas. How could we talk? How could I talk to my neighbor and get them to understand that these structures that you might see from your beach chair have so much more going on below the surface? So we really took on this concept of understanding the implications of reefing California's platforms as, as Emily mentioned, as a graduate thesis. But when we graduated, we had a lot of momentum. And, you know, there are oil platforms in every ocean. So we started Blue Latitudes as a marine environmental consulting firm to work with industry and government to look at their platforms on a case-by-case basis and help them determine which ones would make for viable reefing candidates and which ones wouldn't. And that kind of goes hand in hand with your question about, well, what how do you reefify a rig? What exactly is that process? And that's sort of the the magic here is that these structures, when they're installed, are, of course, placed to extract oil and gas resources. But the structure, that galvanized steel that stretches from seafloor to sea surface, creates a lot of real estate for marine life. We have lots of nooks and crannies. It's almost like a very latticework structure, that platform jacket, and marine life is attracted to it. So over time, you see the settlement of smaller invertebrates like scallops, anemones, mussels, corals. And then over time, ecosystem build and ecosystems build and build and become greater and greater. And in California, our platforms that have been in place for 30 to 50 years, they've actually been studied to be some of the most productive ecosystems on the planet. And so that's saying a lot for an oil and gas structure. And many structures around the world have the same level of productivity, some that we've studied in the Gulf of Mexico, as well as others around the world in Malaysia, and even over off the West Coast of Africa. Maybe I should get you a t-shirt that says the reef industry is rigged. <laughs> so um, do these naturally turn into reefs or do you have to go and hang things on them to, you know, as, as nucleation sites to create a reef? And does that compromise the integrity of the cleaning schedule if there is one or the maintenance schedule of the legs of the platform? You know, that's a great question because I think it really plays into some of the challenges that this program faces in terms of public perception. Because it's really difficult to imagine any sort of marine life naturally growing on an oil platform. They just, they seem like complete opposites, you know, they diametrically opposed. But the reality is the second you place any sort of offshore structure into the water column, marine life will naturally be attracted to that structure. And over time, you know, depending on various factors, it will also begin to produce on that structure. And what makes oil platforms such good candidates for artificial reefs really has to do with the structure itself. These platforms, they can be as tall as the Empire State Building. So that creates a lot of real estate for marine life to grow and colonize on. Picture skyscraper reefs really is what we're talking about. And additionally, these platforms, they're very complex. So marine life typically will be more attracted to and start to produce more effectively on structures that are complex. So lots of beams and cross beams. So when you look at an oil platform, it almost looks like the scaffolding of um, a skyscraper. So those two factors are really what lends these platforms to being hotspots for marine life. And then the other component really has to do with their location. More often than not, these platforms are placed in blue ocean settings. So away from some of the nearshore issues like erosion and pollution and runoff. 
And so they create these very biodiverse hotspots in unique blue ocean settings. And we really don't need to do that much. They'll become reefs all on their own. Um, again, does it uh, the rig owners, do they, I mean, I guess they, they own the real estate beneath the rig. They own the whole thing. But do they tolerate this? Do they mind? Uh, what's the interaction like with them? Yeah, so many of the operators are aware of what's of what's happening below the surface. And they might even see some of the marine life growing there when they're doing their maintenance surveys. We actually team up with some operators during their maintenance surveys to and give their ROV operators specific protocols to help develop a baseline understanding for the marine life that's grown there. So while they're that after they've done their maintenance work, they spend, you know, a couple other, maybe a few more hours running additional transects with the ROV and capturing on video footage the marine life that's there. And what we can do is go back into that footage and understand uh, what type of abundance and fish species are present on the structure. And like I said, develop this baseline understanding of ecological value. So some some operators really are aware of that and try to capitalize on the the presence of that ecosystem as a way to plan for decommissioning and perhaps even save costs when decommissioning comes by having this reef in place option, which can be in some cases be a more economical decommissioning option. Other operators see the marine growth as an an issue in terms of creating drag on the structure or compromising the integrity of it. And so in some cases, like in California, an operator would go and clean the upper 60 to 80 feet to prevent drag and really wash away the thick muscle and anemone growth. Interestingly, though, they have to routinely go and clean, re-clean it because the marine life does come back after a couple of years. And so that's those are just two different views that operators might take on the presence of marine life on their structure. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Is there any um, creature or method under the sea that maybe acts as like a, to create spider webs, let's say between the legs or to join the legs and something, you know, with a reef-like structure so that it acts as a, a much bigger surface for fish to, to hang out in? There isn't, well, you know, coral will start to grow and branch and grow in size. But the thing is, these platforms, they're so large that the distance from one cross beam to another can easily be 50, 60 feet. So it becomes, that would be a very long way for a marine creature to be able to stretch. But the marine life that's growing on the structure, the corals, the mussels and scallops, they do create much more surface area for other species to utilize on the structure. So 
essentially all this marine life is actually creating more substrate, more of a structure for other marine life to capitalize on. Um, these structures large enough where it's essentially like a fishery or it could be a commercial enterprise where you can get enough, I don't know, fish or mollusks or whatever off of them to, to sell? Or is that not in the, is that not a part of it at all? Many commercial fishermen will target the structures as, or the proximity of the structures as an area for enhanced fishing resources. So depending on what they're fishing for and the, what type of gear they have, they may either seek out a structure or avoid them completely. You can imagine if you're a trawl fisherman, you do not want to lose any of your gear to entanglement with a structure. So you're going to keep a wide radius from that structure to ensure that there's no issues there. And But some maybe a hook and line fisherman or even a free diver, somebody that's doing scallop or muscle collecting, they might seek out proximity to the structure because there's almost like this reef halo effect where the marine life that's been spawning, breeding, growing to maturity on the platforms are expanding out into the surrounding environment. So what is uh, what's the role of blue latitudes? What, what kind of issues do you tend to focus on in regards to these uh, rig reefs? So blue latitudes, so we function as an environmental consulting firm. And so what we do is we sort of serve as an entity to help offshore oil companies better understand the ecological value associated with their structures. And the reason they want to do that is when it comes to the end of life for these platforms. So they're no longer useful for pumping oil or the price of oil has made it such that they'd like to remove the structure. Oil companies really have two options um, depending on where they're located. They can either completely remove the structure and take it on shore to be recycled or scrapped. Or in areas that have reefs to reef programs, they could leave it in place so that it can be permitted as an artificial reef. But if you want to permit a structure as an artificial reef, in many locations, you need to be able to demonstrate that there would be environmental benefit to doing so. So, for example, if you remove an, uh, an oil platform, there might be a negative environmental be um, benefit because you're removing this unique ecosystem. Or maybe maybe it's become a fisheries hotspot and local fishermen don't want to see it removed. So a lot of times what we'll do is we'll come in to utilize remotely operated vehicles, which are sort of like underwater drones that you can fly and um, take video of the actual structure itself. And we can quantify the coral species, the invertebrates, the fish species to demonstrate whether or not that platform is considered ecologically valuable to assist these oil companies in the permitting process should they choose to want to reef that platform structure. We also work on um, selecting designated reef locations. So we work with local departments of fish and wildlife to help select new reef planning areas. So these will be large areas of the ocean bottom where several structures might get permitted in place as reefs. And we also work with the oil companies to better understand how these oil platforms impact fisheries. So we'll conduct fisheries analysis and fisheries assessments to understand how commercial fishermen are interacting with these platforms. So that if we do reef them, it's not going to have a negative impact on these stakeholders. So again, oh, so these are um Again, fishing spots for regular fishermen, but there's no commercial activity associated with any of them. You know, ones that have, you know, maybe the rig is not working, but again, the environmental benefit is net to keeping the the substructure in there. Have any of these become, again, commercial places or just, you know, places for regular fishermen to fish? 
they they definitely have once they've been if a structure has been repurposed permanently as a reef then in some cases and in certain areas fishermen will seek them out and there'll be you know specific areas where they'll want to go fish but again like i mentioned that depends on the fishing gear type and proximity to shore you know several other factors like that um have you seen that it's a net benefit to have these uh you know these rigs in place or is it a detriment i'm sure it depends on the situation but how, how often is it you know one or the other clearly you know i would say in many in most circumstances we can demonstrate that there's a significant environmental benefit but where we want to be careful is saying that every single platform is a good candidate for reefing because the truth is that's not the case there are a lot of platforms for a variety of reasons whether safety reason or it's at the mouth of a river where they're experiencing lots of erosion runoff or they're near major shipping channels. There's a lot of reasons that a platform might not be a good candidate for an artificial reef. Um, But I would say, you know, depending on those factors, a lot of the platforms that we look at are absolutely great candidates for artificial reefs. And that's really the case on oil platforms that we've looked at in oceans around the world, from Thailand to Malaysia to California to the Gulf of Mexico. For ones that become permanent, are there ways to even further increase the surface area? You know, if you hang, I don't know, maybe more spare metal off the main legs to create more places for reefs to form. You know, do, do any of them get dressed up to max maximize the production of reef? Yes. So there are companies out there that have sort of reef enhancement materials that they might sell to whoever has decided to take over the liability for that structure as a reef. And those enhancement materials can draw in more marine life and create more ecosystem value in an area that perhaps wouldn't have it naturally. In the in areas like Louisiana, they will tow structures into designated reefing areas so that they have multiple platforms within a close proximity to each other. And that does two things. It allows for more connection and connectivity between these reefs. So you're sort of enhancing one platform by having it reefed close to another. And it also creates a designated area that trawlers can actively avoid and hook and line fishermen can actively target. And so it in the planning of their reefing, they really took that into consideration of how to enhance these reefs while also minimizing impacts to other ocean users. So what um so your role is to help I guess the transition or the you know the decision to either keep or not keep a reef at a given site and then to develop it or you know once the decision is made to keep it, is there much involvement from you guys? Well, the, so once the decision is made to keep it, so that means that the oil company has made the decision, we want to go ahead and refit. There are a variety of studies that we'll look at. So we'll do, just because the oil company decides they want to keep it, doesn't mean that it's going to be accepted by the state department, you know, the department that the state, so Louisiana, Texas, et cetera, and the Department of Fish and Wildlife within those respective states. So to do that, you need to do the remotely operated vehicle assessments, commercial fisheries and stakeholder analyses in some cases, siting studies, especially for platforms that might be in unique locations. For example, if it's in very, very deep waters, 
But let's say all those are accomplished and accepted by the Department of Fish and Wildlife within that respective state, then we step out of it. So the next part is really the engineering of removing this structure, severing it from its platform base or toppling it onto its side. There's several options when it comes to the reefs to reefs designation. You can either tell a platform to a designated location, maybe a planning area, or you can remove the upper portion of the platform. So the section 80 feet below the surface and place it next to the platform standing, or you could topple the whole thing onto its side. And that's really going to come down to oil company preference. And sometimes the state will also weigh in based on where it's going. But we step out of it from the engineering perspective. That's We mostly are focusing on the ecological components of it. On occasion, we've been asked to go back to a site to better understand how quickly marine life has been colonizing on that structure so we can understand whether or not a platform, a unique type of platform would be a good case for a rigs to reefs candidate. So we go visit a site that, for example, was reefed in very deep water and to better understand, you know, what does a marine community look like 10 years after a reefing event in a thousand feet of water? So in those scenarios, we might come back. Um, what is the uh, distribution of reef and fish and mollusks and all that look like versus depth? Like how far does this stuff go down and, you know, what kind of life is where in the column? Sure. So typically when you think of a reef, you think of a tropical warm water reef environment that might be found in more shallow, shallow to 30, maybe 60, 80, 100 feet of water. And that's where you see a lot of coral development and tropical fish species. but even at depth, as light decreases and pressure increases and water gets colder, the biodiversity of life actually continues and in some cases can actually increase at the seafloor. And the reason for this is that you might not have as many species, so your abundance might not be as high, but the diversity or the number of different species is really great, much greater at depth. And we've surveyed many structures from the sea surface all the way down to seafloor at depths anywhere between 400 to, I think one of our deepest structures was following pipelines down to some subsea equipment at 7,000 feet water depth you continue to see marine life at those depths. It's just changes in composition and in, you know, but that biodiversity and abundance. It's interesting too at depth because depth is, you know, not as well studied. We don't have as many scientists who are down at 7,000 feet or who have the resources to go that deep, whether it be submersible or remotely operated vehicle to study those environments. So what's unique about our position in the field is that we get to study these environments and learn as we go, learn about the ecosystems there and help contribute to a scientific understanding of marine life at, at great depths and how fragile it can be and how different types of activities can have a big impact on these important communities. So what does the uh, the future of this industry look like? Where is it headed? Well, you know, I think the big focus right now is quickly becoming renewables and how that's going to change the offshore landscape. So I think as we start to shift away from our reliance on traditional petroleum-based resources offshore, the industry, you know, oil and gas companies are looking at how 
oil and gas development is going to shape the future development of offshore wind or other such offshore structures. Um, you know, when we look at the Gulf of Mexico planning areas for the future of offshore wind development lease areas, they map almost exactly where offshore oil and gas platforms are currently located. So we really get a sense of it's one industry is starting to shift on its way out. Another industry is quickly coming to replace it. So I don't think we're going to be looking at a notion where there's no offshore structures or you don't see folks using our ocean resources. I think it's just transitioning to a new type of energy development. And so I think this is always going to be a question of how we can use our oceans in a way that's sustainable and how can we design these structures to benefit the marine environment while still allowing us to utilize ocean energy sources. But I do think the industry is very quickly changing and we're seeing a lot of locations that never had offshore structures like New England or the Pacific Northwest quickly developing their offshore resources to be able to support large wind farms. Oh, um, for offshore wind or offshore, yeah. Um, what does it look like for the uh, the posts that go below the water? Does any life accumulate on them or is, or no? So they've they've found that in areas like off the coast of the east off east coast where they've developed a few of these wind farms that. Marine life has colonized the structure in a very similar way to how that it does with oil platform structures. So we at first see small opportunistic species that that colonize the hard structure. And then over time, fish and larger fish come in and you have a more robust ecosystem. So they're slowly growing and developing on these wind farms. And so like Emily mentioned, it's a case where right now the ecosystems are new and perhaps even not well understood until they develop further and, and more research is done. But it's likely that when it comes time to remove these offshore wind structures, they'll be facing some of the similar challenges that the offshore oil and gas industry has been facing in terms of removal of a structure that has become a habitat. And is not only benefiting the local ecosystem, but also providing resources to other stakeholders and fishermen in the in the area. Well, is there a, a way or a plan to modify, let's say, the bases of um, of wind turbines so that they can accommodate a lot more life? Because that would give an extra benefit if you're going to have them there and disturb the area. Why not uh, you have a reef structure where life can accumulate around it? You know, it's definitely something that's being talked about and investigated because a lot of times what we'll see with wind turbines is that they might be a monopile, so very simplistic structure, or they're floating, so you don't get that fixed structure all the way to the seafloor. So we're seeing a lot of discussions around this topic happen, especially in Europe. We've actually, there's already um, offshore wind turbines that have been developed that they can also co-host aquaculture farms. So they've got kelp lines stretching from the wind turbine that also attracts other marine life that are attracted to the kelp. So it is something that's certainly being explored because, you know, wind turbines, they take up a big footprint. Is there a way to encourage marine life to grow on them using that rigs to reefs model? So it is something that's being investigated actively. Oh, good. Very good. Well, what's the best way for people to find out more about uh, Blue Latitudes and the work you guys are doing? Yes, well, we are on social media. We're on LinkedIn. You can check out our website at rig2reefexploration.org. And 
we also, you can, if anyone is directly interested, you can always email us. I'm amber at bluelatitudes.org Emily, and emily at bluelatitudes.org. We post re- you know, pretty frequently on our LinkedIn, as well as on our other social media. Some of our social media, you'll notice though, it's not just Blue Latitudes, it's Blue Latitudes Foundation, which is our nonprofit organization. And so Blue Latitudes Foundation focuses on outreach, education, and research around some of these issues where offshore energy and the environment intersect. And how can we work together to find ways to conserve our oceans? So we are have a presence on Facebook and Instagram for our foundation that's pretty heavily posted on if people are interested to take a look and follow us there. Okay, very good. Well, both of you, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. We appreciate you for having us. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.